Uh, there was a book that came out a number of years ago that some of you know, especially if you're a parent. It was written by Catherine Peterson, or Patterson, and it's the book called The Bridge to Terabithia. And you may have heard of it. It was an award-winning book for its year and, that it was published, and it's a children's book, and it was a really uh, a book of much importance to many children that have read it. But what's interesting about this book is the circumstances on what led this author to write this book. So Catherine specifically wrote this book off of her son in a tragedy that her son faced in, her, in his life. Uh, specifically, her son had a friend named Lisa who died, and it really hurt her son's life in a way that, that uh, he had to suffer great loss and grief and pain. And in reflecting about this book, Catherine writes these words about her son. He is not fully healed. Perhaps he never will be. And I'm beginning to believe that this is right. How many people in their whole lifetimes have a friend who is to them what Lisa was to David? When you have such a gift, should you ever forget it? Of course he will forget a little. Even now he is making other friendships. His life will go on, though hers could not. And selfishly I want his pain to ease, but how can I say that I want him to get over it? As though having loved and been loved were some sort of disease. I want the joy of knowing Lisa and the sorrow of losing her to be a part of him and to shape him into growing levels of caring and understanding, perhaps as an artist, but certainly as a person. These words strike me, and the story around why she writes this book strikes me, because as a parent, and for those of you that are parents in this room, I think we can all relate to a moment in life where we try to shield our offspring from dangers, where we try to prevent the people that we love, even if we aren't a parent, maybe it's just our significant other, but we try to prevent the people that we love from harm. But yet oftentimes, harm and the difficulties that we could go through in life have a way of shaping us, right? And if we allow it to shape us, it could shape us for the better. And at least for Catherine, as she reflects on the life of her son David, she thinks about how her son's loss has shaped him in a way for the better, and that she hopes that it will continue to shape him for the better. And today's story, we're going to be looking at the life of an individual who was shaped by her circumstances, not because she had a child, but rather because she desperately wanted a child and was withheld that honor, and through her pain sought the Lord in the midst of her struggle. So today we're going to be looking at chapter 1, which tells the story of Hannah, a very important story. Uh, but just a little bit about 1 Samuel for those of you that might not know the book of 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel is actually accompanied by another book in the Bible called 2 Samuel. And if you didn't know this, it was actually one collective book when it was written. But the authors, uh, the Bible authors along the way, the, the people that were in charge of canonizing Scripture, decided to separate them both into 1 Samuel 
in 2 Samuel, and that happens in a few books in the Bible, just as uh, if, if you think in the New Testament, Luke is accompanied by Acts, but yet they're separated. So 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel were actually one book that was split apart, and it really follows the flow of three main characters. Uh, first, we, we hear the person Samuel, of who this book is credited to, and he is a prophet of God in this book. Then, as we'll learn in the weeks to come, there is Israel's first king, King Saul, and then followed by a very important figure, which many of us have heard or know well, and that is David. And through this book, we learn about the really Israel's building of a unified kingdom that David, King David, is able to bring. But this story really comes off of the heels of another important book in Scripture, specifically the book of Judges. And where Judges is different from 1 Samuel is that the covenant people of God continue to fail in following the Lord as His King. And 1 Samuel in some ways sets it apart as there's this transition from God as King to a person as King. And we'll learn more about that later. But oftentimes I think one of the big themes that we learn in 1 Samuel is the importance of dedicating ourselves to the Lord and how that has such a large impact in our lives. So as I said, there's those three main characters, Samuel, Saul, and David. But yet, what's interesting about 1 Samuel is how it opens. As I spoke on just a moment ago, it opens with telling a story of this woman named Hannah. Now, this is really unlike many other books in its opening, but yet it, it, Hannah really sets the way for this book. And if you didn't know the life of Hannah, I'd like to take a little bit of time to share with you what her life looked like. You see, Hannah was married to a gentleman named Elkanah. And each year, Hannah and her husband would travel to the region of Shiloh, and there they would go and they would offer sacrifices to the Lord. Now, these sacrifices were very important in Old Testament culture because these sacrifices offered atonement to the Lord for their sins. So they would sacrifice different kinds of animals for different kinds of reasons, but usually what would happen is there would be a culture of sacrifice where you would have to sacrifice an animal for the atonement of your sins. So they would gather in this region in order to dedicate themselves to the Lord and pay homage and, and enter into these sacrifices every single year. But what was different about Hannah's situation is you see Hannah shared her husband with somebody else. You see, Elkanah actually had not one wife, but two wives. And this second wife, Peninnah, was a sister wife, if you will, to Hannah. But the problem between these two women was that Peninnah was able to have sons and daughters, that Scripture tells us. But Hannah was not. You see, Hannah suffered from a problem of infertility. She was barren and could not afford her husband a child. 
Now, I'm sure many of you have gone or heard of a struggle of what it's like to try to have children. I have family members, and we've even experienced in our own life a loss of a child. And even within today's culture, when a woman or a family tries to get pregnant and they're not able to achieve that end but desire that end, or along the way maybe suffer a miscarriage, that is a very, very devastating affair. Because family is such a beautiful thing. Children are such a beautiful thing. And I know that's not everybody's story, but it is a common story. And we still see how this can negatively impact us in today's world. Well, take that impact that we experience here and heighten it a little bit more. Because you see, within their culture... Children were incredibly important. Yes, they are still, of course, important today, but a child was how an inheritance was passed through a family. It was how, in some ways, the work of a family carried on. It was how, in some ways, especially if you had a son within that culture, how the whole family would eventually be provided for. And to not have a child was to bring great shame to a family. And it was often thought of that if you were unable to do that, that you were less than. Or that perhaps you were living under some form of a curse. So all the shame that we would expect in today's world, with maybe struggling to conceive, was a reality for them, but also multiplied by a culture that valued childbearing. Now, I want to take this moment to remind you that the Bible and the stories that it tells are real stories about real people who suffer real problems. You see, it's so easy for us to open the Bible, look at the words that it has to say, and somehow forget that this was an individual who would have been devastated by her lot in life. And it was made completely worse because her sister wife used this as an opportunity to ridicule her, to make her feel small, and to provoke her in the fact that she could not bear children. So Hannah lived in great shame, in great emptiness, at her inability to be able to be a mother. And this is the world that we find this woman in. But I'd like to take some time to highlight something obvious, and that is is that she has a sister wife, that there is somebody in her life that she is sharing her husband with. 
And I, the reason why I want to highlight this is because obviously we're talking about a biblical character. And even though the Bible in some ways is silent on polygamy, we can, I, I want to take some time to hopefully help us understand this culture. You see, it was completely, it, it, it was more normal, if you will, or it was normalized, maybe better said, within the ancient world, not just Israel, for families to be able to have multiple wives because these cultures lived in what's called a patriarchal society, which basically means a society that is led and governed by men. So oftentimes, a woman, if she did not get married within this culture, with this world being so so, so apart from what we understand, but oftentimes if a woman could not get married in this culture, she would look to either her brother or her father to to be able to provide for her. But if that could not happen, then oftentimes her only options, unfortunately, was slavery or some form of indentured servitude, starvation, or prostitution. So within Scripture, we see many stories where Maybe a woman's husband dies, and then what happens is, is the husband's brother will marry that woman, not just so that he has an additional partner, but rather so that woman will go under the covering of that household so that she will be taken care of and provided for. But I want to be clear about something here. Scripture, especially with the Old Testament, you see particular practices there that are totally different from maybe what we would even teach today or what we would consider normal today. But that is just the Lord offering what I would call divine accommodation. So in the same way that you see in Scripture the language of maybe gods being used, this term, this this idea that there are other gods out there, and as you travel through the Old Testament, by the time you get to Jeremiah, they totally reject this idea of other gods existing, that the only God is Yahweh. In the same way, you kind of see that God in some ways, even though it's not His original plan or design, allows these accommodations but pushes society to hopefully come to a better understanding of his original design, which is why the time you get to the New Testament, you see certain books like 1 Timothy and Titus saying that if you're in church leadership, you are to be the man of one wife. So I want to point that because I don't, I don't want us to mistake and think that this is God's design for this family. But really, what's more important here is Hannah's struggle. Because her struggle is something that each of us, at some point in our lives, even if we are not a mother, can relate to. And that is the failed or, or, or the, the going through a circumstance in life where you are trying to fulfill something that is good, but you are unable to do so. Because here's the thing. There are many of us in here who, one, are not women, and two, have, have for whatever reason, not chosen the pathway of being able to have children. And that's 100% okay. 
But all of us, regardless of whether we have experienced motherhood or parenthood or not, has all had a circumstance in our lives where we desired something that we believe the Lord has instituted as good, but yet for whatever reason that was withheld from us or maybe taken from us. So we all have had moments in our lives where we've desired something that we have not been able to obtain. And maybe that is in our personal life, our family life, whatever it might be. We've all experience that at one time or another. And it's with that mindset that I'd like for us to further understand this story in the life of Hannah and her heartbreak. So in verse 9 of 1 Samuel chapter 1, it says this, Once when they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh, Hannah stood up. Now Eli, the priest, was sitting on his chair by the doorpost of the Lord's house. In her deep anguish, Hannah prayed to the Lord, weeping bitterly. And she made a vow, saying, Lord Almighty, if you will only look on your servant's misery and remember me, and not forget your servant, but give her a son. If you read those words, are you reading the words of somebody that is just, well, God, you know, if you could give me something, this would be kind of nice. No, you're reading the words of someone that's going through deep pain and anguish. And she continues by saying, then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life, and no razor will ever be used on his head. I mean, did you hear this? She wants to be able to be a mother so bad that she's willing to take this child and literally bear this child and go through all the difficulties of what labor and pregnancy looks like just to be able to have the honor of having a child and being a mother and then immediately in some ways passing that child over to the Lord. And it continues in verse 12. As she kept on praying to the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was praying in her heart, and her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. Eli thought she was drunk and said to her, How long are you going to stay drunk? Put away your wine. Not so, my Lord, Hannah replied. I am a woman who is deeply troubled. I have not been drinking wine or beer. I was pouring out my soul to the Lord. I mean, could you imagine the state that she would have been in? Do not take your servant for a wicked woman. I have been praying here out of my great anguish and grief. So she was in so much pain that her prayers literally looked like, at least to Eli, a drunk woman praying. And Eli wisely responds to her, Go in peace and may the God of Israel grant you what you have asked for. And she replies, May your servant find favor in your eyes. Then she went her way and ate something, and her face was no longer downcast. So I have a question for you, and I think this question is very important. I'd like for you guys to reflectively answer this question for yourself. How does Hannah handle her pain? Think about that. 
how does Hannah handle her pain? You see, many of us, I think, when we are in moments of pain and anguish, and in the words used to describe her, anguish and great grief, we typically try to find somebody, something to blame, right? If we're mad at the world, we blame a certain political party or a certain political leader. If we're mad about our situation in life, we might blame a significant other. We might blame a coworker. We might blame an experience that happened, and we allow that in some ways to have a, a, a place or a position of authority in life that, in, that ends up just furthering our grief and our anguish that does nothing to be able to resolve the situation that we're going through. And church, I want to take a time to highlight how Hannah handles her pain because she does not point the finger at anybody. She does not point the finger at Peninnah who is obviously provoking her and making her feel less than a woman. She does not point the finger at Elkanah for not being able to conceive with him or the fact that he has another wife and she does not point the finger at God. What does she do? And the question that I have for you is really, what do you do? What do you do when life doesn't go your way? Do you instantly find someone to blame? A prolific commentator, Joyce G. Baldwin, I, uh, I like what she has to say about this portion of, of 1 Samuel. She writes this, there is an in in instructive contrast between Hannah, who, distraught and averse to food, went to pray, and the Hannah who returned to join the family. Though outwardly her circumstance had not changed, she was now joyous and resolute, full of assurance that her prayers would be answered. And I think what Joyce is trying to bring up here is, is the fact that Hannah allowed her anguish and her grief to not control her life, but rather to allow that to be an opportunity to go to God. And that when she went to God, she in faith believed that God was going to listen and that God was going to answer her prayers. Did anything change in her life? Did that prayer just magically make her pregnant? No, but she lived with the assurance that the Lord heard her. Church, that is a message that we need to hear, that when we are going through our grief and our anguish and the things that bring us down in life, that we not, need not to blame anyone per se, but rather we are to go to God and trust what? That He heard us. That is incredibly difficult. I say this with a certain level of authority and confidence because I know it's true, but the reality is to be able to accomplish that is so hard. 
right? I mean, this is no easy task, which is why when, uh, when there's a woman like this in Scripture who's able to do something like this, we are to remember that and take note of that and allow that to encourage us and motivate us to be similar. Because otherwise, we're going to perpetually live in our grief and our anguish, and we're going to allow that to dig us further into our hole. God wants us to use the pain that we are going through as an opportunity to draw closer to Him. And that is an encouragement that I have for you today, to use your pain as an opportunity to draw closer to God. Amen? Use your pain as an opportunity to draw closer to God. I like this quote from Brother Lawrence, who, if you don't know, he wrote a great book called Practicing His Presence, and uh, he was a 17th century monk who was really known for being able to have, or or, or being able to, to have a great intimacy with God, and he writes this. He writes, you need not cry very loud. He is nearer to us than we think. Isn't that a truth? But for whatever reason, when we are faced with our hardships, it, it often feels like God cannot be further away. But we need to, in, in those moments, take a breath, stop for a moment, and realize, just as Brother Lawrence reminds us here, that He is nearer to us than we think. Church, use your, op- your pain as an opportunity to, to draw closer to God. You know, earlier in this service, I I won't mention her by name now just for the sake of the podcast, but earlier in this service, I had mentioned a woman in our church that had moved away. And what I didn't mention in that conversation, and if you're listening, thank you for taking the time to share this with me because I was blessed by hearing that, was that this individual who had moved away from our church, who's had trouble being able to find a fellowship like ours, and and by the way, I just want to thank so many of you, because this individual really took the time to tell me how welcomed she felt into this fellowship, and how difficult it's been for her, because people have not surrounded her so quickly the way that we were able to for this person. So, please keep on doing that because that makes a difference in people's lives. So thank you to those of you that really surrounded this individual. But what, what blessed me in our conversation wasn't her pain. Her pain was real and her pain caused her suffering so much so that she admitted to me the sense of loneliness that she's been feeling. But what blessed me was is she says, you know, every single time I feel that feeling in church, It invites me to just lean in more with my relationship with God. And I was blessed by that because in this particular individual's life, she's not allowing her pain to be wasted. She's not allowing her pain to be something to hold against God, but rather she's using the pain that she's going through as an opportunity to draw closer to God. And here's the thing, I'm not saying... That, that she should feel this way. 
And I'm not excusing the church at large for not meeting her needs. I mean, the reality is, is that the church will fail you. There is no such thing as a perfect church. If there was and you attended it, you would ruin it, okay? So don't go there if you find a perfect church. I will fail you. Someone in here will fail you. That's just the nature of doing life in a fallen world. If you haven't been disappointed yet, stick around. You will be. <laughs> but in the reality is, is there's no other better way to be able to collectively grow towards the Lord. The church is God's plan for being able to minister, reach, and disciple the world. So in some ways, we accept those risks, if you will. We accept those shortcomings because we realize that life is better together than alone, that God blesses His church. So don't get me wrong, I'm not trying to excuse this sense of void in her life, but rather what I'm trying to continue to encourage is to allow opportunities of pain to be something that is not wasted. It's very difficult to do because some pains are rather great. Some pains have to do, deal with, just as I shared in the beginning of this, this sermon today, a son losing a beloved friend. And I'm sure there are some pains in your own life of loss that you have felt, whether it's losing a loved one, losing out on an opportunity, or just something changing in your life that radically affects what you had expected. Let me be clear. God is not the author of sin. God does not want you to, to in, in some ways, God does not want to bring sin into your life. So we aren't to attribute this, all the sufferings that we go through as God trying to hammer us down, but rather what I'm trying to encourage us with is don't allow your pain to be wasted. Use the pain that you go through to draw closer to God. I would like to continue now in verse 20. Verse 20 says, So in the course of time, Hannah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Samuel, saying, Because I asked the Lord for him. When her husband Elkanah went up with all his family to offer an annual sacrifice to the Lord and to fulfill his vow, Hannah did not go. She said to her husband, After the boy is weaned, I will take him and present him before the Lord, and he will live there always. Now, this story is incredible because what does it prove? That God hears and answers our prayers. God hears and answers our prayers. I don't know, we don't know, we can't know what would have happened to Hannah had she not prayed that day, right? 
because that, the story isn't told in that direction. The way the story is told is that Hannah prayed, God answered, God heard her prayers, and God gifted her with a child. So I'm led to believe that if Hannah never prayed to the Lord, if Hannah never in her, in her anguish, in her grief, never went to God, then she would have never experienced the blessing of motherhood in her life. She would have never seen that desire fulfilled. And oftentimes I wonder what churches would look like, what people would look like, what our situations would look like if we truly believed that God worked through and answered our prayers. Church, as your pastor, as your friend, as somebody who cares about the spiritual direction of your life, pray. Don't forget to pray. Because prayer has the opportunity and the power and the potential to change the course of your life. And there is no greater prayer that proves this than saying, Lord Jesus, I recognize you as my Savior. Talk about a prayer that changes the direction and the course of your life. So prayer has the power to do that. And please, church, do not let this sermon be wasted in history by not taking God up in the privilege of prayer. Take this sermon seriously. And the next time you are in a situation of grief, you are in a situation of despair, use that as an opportunity to draw closer to God and pray. Because in 1 Peter 3.12, it reminds us this much, for the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and His ears are attentive to who? To, to what? To their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Do you truly believe that? Do you live like that? And if you don't, this isn't meant to bury you into the ground. This is just meant to begin to change that in your life. Whether you're above the age of 60 or below that age of 60, allow this moment in history to be one that encourages you to deepen your relationship with the Lord through prayer. You know, really what I think Hannah's story sets up in this book and allows us to come into contact with as really the main theme for today's message is that we are to dedicate our lives to the Lord. Dedicate your life to the Lord. And I'm going to give you a bonus point if you're a parent out there. Dedicate your children to the Lord. Chuck Swindoll says this, glorifying God means being occupied with and committed to His ways rather than preoccupied with and determined my own way. 
It is being so thrilled with Him, so devoted to Him, so committed to Him, that we cannot get enough of Him. Moms, dads in the room, I, with you, cannot understand what it is like to want a child so bad to finally receive that child and then to give that child up. There's few people in all of Scripture who know that pain. And of course, the first two that come to mind is Mary and Hannah. Mary giving up her son to be able to do the tasks of the Lord. Ultimately, we know that that life would be lived on our behalf and that He would go and die a death that we deserved, not that He deserved on a cross. The pain that Mary must have gone through to be able to witness that firsthand is unfathomable. But also we see in this story another great woman of Scripture being able to fulfill the words that she says and give her child up to the Lord. But in her life and in this deed, what was able to come out is one of the greatest prophets that ever lived in the person of Samuel and proves to each and every single one of us how if we dedicate ourselves to the Lord and how if we take the time to dedicate our children to the Lord, that we truly can see God move in powerful ways. Of course, there is no guarantee on the path that our children will take that is up for them. But God is calling us, if you are a mom or dad, to be able to steward well your children. And even if you are not a mom or a dad in this room, maybe you are a grandparent, maybe you are a guardian, maybe you are a godmother or a godfather, or maybe you just have an unofficial role of loving on nieces and nephews or loving on somebody that looks to you as a mentor or as a guide in life. Do not waste your opportunity to be able to help shape their lives in the direction of God. You know, today I have the privilege of my mom and dad being in this room, and if you didn't get to, to see them, that's Ada and Ben right there, and uh, they're the ones that sculpted this beautiful face. <laughs> um, and I need to, I, I think there's no better message that I've preached that affords me the opportunity to say thank you, mom and dad, because you've done that for me. You've fulfilled in my mind that point up there of dedicating your children to the Lord. I still have the photo of my baby dedication, and I thank you for that. I thank you that that was not an isolated moment in time, which if you didn't know, Hannah's story in some ways frames for us the importance of baby dedication that we still do today. But more important than just having a pastor anoint a little child with oil, more important than that is true dedication to the Lord means dedicating your life first. And mom, dad, I'm thankful that both of you dedicated your life first 
to the Lord and showed me the importance of having integrity, living life with prayer, and above all things, honoring God in all that you do. Although, Mom, you probably did it better than Dad. (laughs) I'm just kidding. But we all know it's true. (laughs) But church, let us use Hannah's story to truly encourage us to these ends. Because this is so much more than about being a mom or dad. This is about what direction does your life flow into? Does it flow into one that just crumbles in the face of every adversity we go through? Or does it, do you try to push yourself, regardless of the circumstances that you go to, to the Lord? Because I think there is no greater thing that we can do in our lives than to dedicate ourselves to God and to His service. So my encouragement for you is to do that to look at Hannah's story and to see the importance of what it means to dedicate yourself to the Lord and then to be the kind of individual that helps others better see God through the life that you are living, not just through the actions that you take, but the things that you say. Through word and deed, dedicate yourself to God. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much that the Bible is full of men and women who fail often, who go through great pain, who struggle in this world that we live in. That even though the times have changed, society has changed, ultimately most of the struggles remain the same. That we have an entire book filled with opportunity to see and be reminded of how you work in the lives of those who dedicate themselves to you. Father, I know that there are many of us, myself included, that when adversity has come our way, when situations that have caused us grief and anguish anguish have come our way, that we have pointed a finger. God, I pray that you would teach us that maybe starting right now, especially if we are in the midst of our own grief right now, that you would allow this to be an opportunity, God, for us to turn that finger away and instead open our hands to you, to let our requests be known to you and to have the belief like Hannah, the resolution like Hannah, that you hear our prayers and that you are going to work on our behalf. It might not always be the outcome that we desired or expected, but that you are ultimately a good God and not the author of sin but the creator of all things that are desirable and truly good in this world. So I pray that you would help us to do that right now, Lord, and that if there are those in this room that are going through that sense of anguish right now, that they would open their hands to you, Lord, 
and let the anguish of their heart be made known to you. In Jesus' name, amen.